Bennett, yesterday at 11.40 a.m., you tweeted a simple seven words, which I will now quote. I think Jarmish is growing on me. Would, would you care to elaborate for the home audience? Yeah, well, uh, we've been planning this episode for a while. And uh, for a long time, uh, the, the plan was that I would come in and kind of play the heel. I was the Jarmish skeptic. Uh, we sort of saw this as maybe a sequel to the Scorsese episode where uh, Rob was coming in as kind of a, a former acolyte turned, uh, you know, uh, what's the opposite of acolyte? I don't know. Turned uh, hater of uh, sure. Scorsese. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've been rewatching a couple of the hits that I was pretty, uh, that I was cold on the first time through um, in preparation for the recording this weekend. And I, I got to be honest, I think I was a little, I was a little harsh on them out of the gate. I think I'm letting my not being quite as enthused about Jarmish as some of my favorite critics um, annoy me more than it ought to. And um, in the case of Down by Law in particular, I think I was really misremembering there being more Benini than there really was. Um, I can remember when I watched it as part of a real Jarmish binge over like a week and a half, um, probably right back to back with Night on Earth, which also features a pretty... Uh, emphatic Benini performance. Yeah. It's, it's such a rich meal, you know? I was pretty shocked you did not like it the first time. Like, that, to me, is about as good as Jarmish gets. Yeah, I, th- I think I also was just looking to shit on something for having a case of one perfect shot-itis, too. <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was, you know, just kind of like, I was just being a little stinker. And, um, I don't know, rewatching both of these movies that we're about to talk about, I liked them even more. Uh, Rob's movie, in particular, jumped up to uh, number one among uh, Jarmish features. Oh, wow. So yeah, I mean, I well, I well, I'm still not. Um, I, I still don't think he's the guy. Like a lot of the great critics seem to. I might move him out of the strange seriousness category yet. He might get into expressive esoteric. <laughs> There's at least been some development. We'll start there. <laughs> Welcome once again to Split Picks. I'm Craig Wright. That's Bennett Glace. Over there is Robert Delaney. Rob, Hello. it's been a while. What's going on with you? It's been a long time. I'm working hard, working all the time. Lots of programming for festivals and theaters and all that sort of stuff. But I'm very excited to speak about Jim Jarmish because he has been one of my favorite directors for a very long time and, and someone that uh, whose films are among some of my favorites. So I'm very happy that Bennett has come over to to the to the side of the positive on on this one um especially because i would like watch your ratings on letterbox and and just be absolutely floored and then i get a text from brett being like oh my god did you see bennett's rating of down by law and i'd be like yeah oh my god i say you know so it's been it's there's been a lot of excitement and drama on my end seeing you reacting to jarmish so the 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 cycle has been interesting bennett what was your first down by law star rating was it two and a half? Uh, I've stopped giving half star ratings. I've started going only whole stars. So it was either two or three. I think it was three. Because I think I liked it a little better than Stranger Than Paradise, which I had, with the just thrill of apostasy, had given two stars, which, again, I was a little too hard on. Maybe we'll talk more about this later. I think another hang up with Jarmish. I wouldn't say I've crossed fully over to the positive. I would say I'm more in the mixed to positive. Um, that would be yellow on Metacritic. Um, I, I think... His, a lot of his influences I like a lot better, and a lot of the people he's influenced I like a lot better. I think in, uh, in Joel Petrakis, we see someone who's very clearly 
uh, riffing on a lot of uh, like situations and, and characters and conversations out of Jarmish movies. And um, I don't know, I like them. I saw them first and liked them better. You know, there's a scene in Ape where uh, where Trevor uh, Joshua Burge's character literally does the uh, the TV dinner monologue. I, I like that sort of Midwestern ball busting, I guess, better than anything in Jarmish. So coming to Jarmish, hearing, you know, Rosenbaum and Jay Hoberman talk about him as like on the level of Cassavetes, I, I couldn't help but feel a little disappointed. Okay. But again, you know, I, he can only he can only go up and uh, it's, it's growing on me with every watch, uh, at least the older films. This is why I'm glad to have both of you here today, because you are both coming from different perspectives on him. I mean, Rob, you've mentioned you pretty much fell in love with his stuff from the start and Bennett, you're, you know warming up to him um but i'm just curious if you could both give me your little mini scouting report on him what's your basic read on him as a director and why do you both feel the way you do about his films i first saw jarmish during undergrad and i actually did a project where i would watch all of his uh most famous work or i guess essential work and then form my own thoughts about them And then after I form my own thoughts about each film, look at all of the sort of critical consensus from journalists or critics or whoever. And um, it was sort of a a eye-opening experience because a lot of the films that I really gravitated towards from him were um, reviled in the media, especially the limits of control. Like his more boundary-pushing work, his more experimental work was less popular. So it was one of my like first introductions to sort of how these sort of films operate in the space. But um, but Jim Jarmusch's director is like one of the sort of darlings of American independent film. Um, and he has been since the 1980s. Like Stranger Than Paradise is sort of cited by many as being one of the first films to really kick off the American independent film craze. Um, and so that's probably his most famous work. But to me, when I think of Jim Jarmusch, I think of someone who is very engrossed in the world around him. Like a lot of his films are very landscaped based. And when I think about his films I almost think about the cities that they're filmed in or the regions that they're filmed in um, as much as the story or the characters or anything like that um, and he's also not very concerned with the narrative a lot of the times like his films aren't exactly non-narrative but um, I think what he says a lot of the times is, is that he wants his films to often feel like a dream or to feel like a wild ride or a wild trip instead of um, acts or something like that instead of feeling like oh now we're going from act one to act two it's supposed to be sort of this continuum of experience um and we'll get into all this sort of his idiosyncrasies and techniques later but um that's what i think about first when i think about jim jarmish so Uh, so much like the last director we discussed jim jarmish is a guy whose reputation precedes him Uh, like you mentioned he's one of the leading figures of american independent cinema kind of the the first generation of post new Hollywood filmmakers. So, you know, we talked about Scorsese and how Scorsese's narrative, you know, being like an asthmatic kid in New York, almost joining the priesthood, um, informs a lot of his films and always seems to be mentioned, um, in like interviews and profiles of him. Jarmish is similar, uh, in the sense that you always seem to read that he is, uh, you know, a Midwestern transplant to New York who, uh, was very, very, uh, embroiled in the, uh, kind of no wave art scene, um, this this New York that we're constantly reminded doesn't exist anymore. And I think part of my knee-jerk aversion to him is my just, like, disdain for, like, man, we were there, man, type um, <laughs> profiles, which every, I don't know, every, uh, every bit of writing on Jarmish seems to involve a little bit of that, um, which I, I, I sent you guys that um, series of reverse shot essays. I think the, the, the pieces on 
Stranger Than Paradise and Permanent Vacation in particular speak to a kind of weariness with like hearing about this story. Um, they're really sort of like, I think they were written in like 06 around the release of Broken Flowers. And there's a sense that like Jarmish has maybe like overstayed his welcome. But yeah, no, he had always been for me one of those people that was held up as yeah one of the guys, um, a person whose films are like immediately recognizable, uh, you know, a true utcher in that sense. But I don't think I'd ever seen one of his films until I saw Patterson um, around its release in what, 2016. And I hated it. And people really, really liked that movie. Um, it's like a perfectly agreeable movie. Um, and I, you know, I like everyone in it, but yeah, I couldn't stand it. I thought it was very pleased with itself. I thought the, I thought like all the, lots of critics I couldn't stand gave this like rapturous praise to it that I just felt, you know, totally alienated from. So I was, you know, I was not in a hurry to watch most of the rest of his films. And I, I feel like that I maybe hadn't seen any others until I uh, started watching them in preparation for this. Um, I knew Limits of Control in particular as, as alienating um, among, you know, even fans of his. Um, weirdly, I think I'd first heard about it in my IMDb message board days. I remember someone having it as like their <laughs> best picture winner for 2009 and thinking that was a pretty esoteric choice. Yeah, I don't know. I, my, my, my perception of Jarmish is that he's much like Scorsese, too, also really like an ambassador for the stuff he likes. You know, he gives a lot of interviews where he talks about his influences. And um, there's, yeah, I, I, I think there's a, I, I listen to like a Lincoln Center talk where he goes through, um, you know, like 10 of his films. Um, but I guess to, to relate it to Scorsese uh, one more time, I, I think part of why I gravitate toward his films more is I find uh i I relate more to the scorsese like personality uh he like talks too fast he's very much like a dork um and jarmish the number one word you always hear associated with him is cool right um he is this like laconic sort of bemused affect um they both have really like distinct looks um i don't know i'm I'm so skeptical skeptical of anyone who is cool (laughs) 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 which again like i shouldn't hold against him i shouldn't be like such a like you know, I shouldn't be so the stereotype of like a critic, you know, like a critic who just like hates artists because he can't be them. But <laughs> I am um, when I when I read a profile of Jarmish and I'm reminded how like cool he is. I'm always like, oh. <laughs> darn him. All right. Well, before we fully launch into Jarmish, I do just want to take a quick second because this episode is going to be coming out on what is Split Tooth's fourth birthday. We are an April hey. Fool's baby and this is year four we're entering. So. I just want to take a quick second to, you know, thank you guys especially, all the Splatoon's writers. I mean, I really feel like we're having a good year so far. And, I mean, Bennett, you have a piece that just came out on a movie you loved and one you did not love. Um, it's been a fun <laughs> one to read. We have a few new writers who have been killing it. So just wanted to give a shout-out to all our people. And I never say it because I hate saying it, but, you know, we're a small site. So please like, subscribe, all that stuff. It really does make a difference. And, you know we're just happy doing this so thank you for listening and with that let's jump into today's movies rob you pitched this episode with your movie in mind you want to tell us what it is and why it stands out to you in particular sure so i picked the limits of control which came out in 2009 uh and it is a assassin spy action film um with no action I think that's one of the best ways to sort of get into this film. And to me, it's sort of the culmination of all of his early work. I think that's one of the interesting, 
you know, differences between how Bennett and I sort of have uh, been in dialogue with Jarmusch's work is I, I think the first Jarmusch film I saw was Permanent Vacation. Like, I think I started with his first film and then went on from there. So his early work in particular is really sort of close to my heart. And I remember, I think I watched like Permanent Vacation, Stranger Than Paradise, Down by Law, um, Dead Man, and then ended with The Limits of Control. So it was almost this climax to me sort of, you know, experiencing his work. And when you um, when you see Limits in that light, I think it's pretty clear that uh, he it's Jarmusch taking the gloves off. Like it's so concentrated with ideas. It feels extremely unconventional that um the the reasons why he made it things like that comes out so clear when he wanted to make a film to show people you don't have to make films in a certain way um i think that's some of the best sort of ways to get into this film in in particular and i think that's one of the reasons why it is so divisive like famously roger ebert gave it i think a half of a star on his review and gave it like a few sentences and he was very famously a jar a jarmish fanboy he loved jarmish's films um but when he was met with jarmish at his most jarmish or jarmish at his most uh experimental he hated it and spat it out um which is i think also why i sort of gravitated towards this film in the beginning because i knew that there was something going on here that um the establishment was not okay with in, yeah. in, in a lot of different ways so so that's why i picked limits and i and and i I've spent a lot of time thinking about this film and trying to unpack it so that um, some of the, the I guess, toxicity about this film can maybe dissipate a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this film was, was really derided upon release. I think it was, it came immediately after Broken Flowers, which I think was a breakthrough of sorts. I think Bill Murray was nominated for a Golden Globe. Biggest box that, office, too. Yeah. I, and I want to say, I misspoke before. Broken Flowers is the first Jarmusch movie I saw, and I saw it probably back in like 2010. So anybody, okay. I, obviously, if you turned the episode off because you heard me talking about how I'm like <laughs> shitting on a director who I <laughs> have only really experienced over the last like three months, I want to assure you, I have had time to reflect on Jarmusch through Decades, Broken yes. Flowers. <laughs> and I think my sort of uh, indifference toward Broken Flowers is another reason I wasn't uh, all that keen on watching more of his films right out of the gate. Right. Um, but yeah, you mentioned it's it's an action film with no action, and um, it's it's him at his most experimental. Um, all of just about all of the films he had made up to this point were um, kind of genre movies with the genre elements you would most expect, kind of snipped out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Down by Law is the prison break movie where we don't see them actually break out or even really find out the details of how they're going to do it. Um, it's Stranger Than Paradise is a is a road movie where neither the journey nor the destination are all that compelling. Um, well, what else? You know, I, uh, Dead Man and, and Ghost uh, Ghost Dog are both you know genre riffs that are pretty pared down and uh, bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially I think of Mystery Train as well, where instead of a film that's sort of steeped in uh, the mystique of like music history in memphis and things like that and going you know in the 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 mythology of elvis and and people of his ilk um is like completely drained out of the presentation as well so it's this it's this film that uh is in dialogue with certain aspects of like cultural mythology and sort of completely sort of cuts it down with the most brutal honesty possible you know right yeah another road trip movie with no conventional payoff Mm -hmm. yeah and so Bennett, Rob picked his immediately. You took a few months to decide which one. And I'm really glad you picked this one because it is another one that's like 
totally a Jarmusch film, but it's on the exact opposite extreme of Limits of Control. So why did you pick your movie? What stood out to you about it? I, I think they're more similar than uh, everybody might want to admit. No, I, uh, I picked The Dead Don't Die, his uh, most recent and certainly his least beloved film. Um, because I think much like, well, I wanted to pick another controversial one. Um, I think this and Limits are definitely his two most controversial uh, films. Um, you know, uh, even people who love Jarmusch are perhaps unlikely to have any affection for these ones. Um, and I, I think it's like Limits, a pretty confrontational film. Um, a film that uh, just kind of uh, really lets the audience have it. Um, and if you're not on its wavelength, it can be a really tough sit. Um, I like that both movies are pretty long, too. So it really forces you to sit with it if you're not on the wavelength. Um, the Dead Don't Die is, yeah, much like um, Limits of Control is an assassin movie where most of the cool assassin stuff is, is cut out. This is a zombie movie where the like escalating tension takes like 45 minutes and nobody notices the warning signs except uh, Tom Waits who is just talking to himself and um, yeah I don't know it has a pretty goofy lackadaisical tone throughout um, which is sort of like um, it, it, I don't know I see it as like the, the lighter version of Limits of Control almost there, yeah. <laughs> um, they're both kind of circular movies too um, you know at Jarmusch movies up to this point are um, you know there's a lot of road trips and then there's kind of like mission movies like Ghost Dog um, and then more recently, he's found himself in kind of like a ponderous sort of circular place. Um, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, another movie of his, which I really can't stand, has a lot of sort of circular motifs. There's a lot of like tires and, and records and stuff. And then Patterson is about a guy whose you know, day is exactly the same every day. It's like um, almost like John Dealman-like in the fact that we keep seeing the same events. And there's, again, circular motifs. And here he seems to be taking that like again like to an extreme like everyone seems to be just like kind of like going around in circles and um yeah i don't know the same way limits of control seems to have that that repetition and that circularity and like for all we know at the end he could be going to do all the same things over again um the dead don't die kind of has that mm -hmm. even before it started there already is a sense that like every day has been the same yeah and i do think jarmusch's career when you zoom out is a lot more interesting than if you just focus on each film because Limits of Control came after Broken Flowers. Now, I've read that there, I think this was the one where there was a film he tried to make that fell through in between, but Broken Flowers brought in nearly 50 million in the box office worldwide. Limits of Control brought in 2 million. Rob, yeah. do you want to just give us a general overview of what Limits of Control is about and just a little bit about how it's structured? Sure. So the limits control is sort of centered on this. Um, I think he's almost called the lone man, or yeah. like the lone figure. It's played by um Isaac Debankele, who is in other Jarmusch films as well, like like Ghost Dog. And uh, the narrative is extremely confusing. But sort of the structure of it is that he sort of travels from place to place going from um, the metropolis of Madrid to sort of the country or the desert. And at each stop, he speaks with another sort of agent who has these cryptic conversations with him and then gives him like a piece of paper with writing on it or code or gives him diamonds or something like that. Um, and eventually he's sort of tasked with assassinating somebody for reasons that are never explained. So it's, it sort of sits in that trope of an assassin film where uh, 
he has to travel long distances to get his target, quote unquote. Um, but the journey is extremely different than, you know, any assassin film that has ever been made and on purpose. I, I mean, Jarmusch has, you know, said explicitly that he wanted to make an action film with no action and a suspense film with no drama, things like that. Um, so that's the overall structure. And uh, on its face, that doesn't sound that interesting, but it's everything that sort of happens in between these conversations, during these conversations, um, that to me makes the film very interesting. And sort of speaking to your point, um, Craig, about it not making very much money, I think one of the things that alienates people so much about this film is because it's so technique driven. Mm -hmm. It's a very technical film. And so there are not these large narrative events like a shooting or someone beats up somebody else or there's a car chase or something like that. Um, the big events are like, wow, he just filmed the same staircase like seven different ways and it looked completely different each time. So it really, I don't know, it appeals to like the film nerd, I guess, in all of us in that way where he's trying to like stretch technique and craft so much, which we'll talk about, I assume, you know, later as well. And from what I've read, it sounds like they approach this without a typical script. I mean, Jarmusch called it a minimal map where they basically had 25 pages and of the whole movie and then they would write dialogue the night before i mean do you think that's a benefit to this film where it wasn't so like set in stone yeah i think that's a a huge benefit to the film because i think one of the things i really like about it is the flow of it and he said in interviews as well that he wanted this to feel like a dream to have sort of dream logic about it and i think that really benefits the conversations in particular because Every time he speaks with someone, he speaks with um, Tilda Swinton or he speaks to another you know, actor in the film. There are almost these like small nested ideas that don't seem to have an overall point into the narrative. Like, what does this have to do with an assassin killing some target? It doesn't. But it's like a dream where things sort of crop up and disappear with um, without a trace and some of the conversations relate to each other in a little bit um, but to me that makes the film really interesting right it adds a lot of variety to the film and it adds a lot of complexity and texture to film like to me this film is like all texture and I think that loosey-goosey nature of the production process allows for things to happen like that and and he even spoke about how there's sort of like a contradiction in the filmmaking process where it's such a, you know, a rigid system where, you know, how many days you have to shoot has to do with how much money you have and scheduling and all of these things. Um, but the creative process is not really like that for Jim Jarmusch. Like it's more um, flowing. So I think that that's why to me, this film is a really good intersection of that contradiction too, to the very controlled process of production filmmaking and the sort of dreamlike process of, you know, creativity. Yeah, it wouldn't shock me to learn that this was like a response to a project falling through or something. Um, From what I could find, it sounds like it was a third music-based movie that was supposed to be in Kansas City. I just can't remember if this was when it was supposed to happen. It, um, I don't know, it, it feels like very much like a, I mean, I could see it either being a response to a movie falling through or a sort of knee-jerk response to the success of Broken Flowers, like a, are you sure you're really with me here, folks, right. sort of a thing. Like, it feels like an early example of, like, late style, uh, yeah. you know, like a, a, a test of, like, who the real fans are. It's interesting that he would, you know, kind of evolve once more uh, in between uh, this film and The Dead Don't Die, which now really feels like uh, old guy Jim Jarmusch. <laughs> Well, Bennett, one thing we talked about in the Clint Eastwood episode is how so often it seems like Clint does one for me, one for the fans. This is definitely like a one for me movie. You know? This is about as one for me as a movie gets. Yeah. 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 
And that's why I like it. It feels like um, self-indulgence in a interesting way. Like I think a lot of the times when I see a film and it's very indulgent on the director, I sort of cringe and that's like sort of a pet peeve. But in this regard, I feel like he indulges in the right places, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, I feel like he's, he's like subtler in his like pastiches here than he often is. Um, like I, I don't know when someone makes like a deliberate, an homage as deliberate as like Forrest Whitaker shooting through the sink in, um, Ghost Dog, as cool as it looks, I can't help but like roll my eyes at like someone just up and like stealing something. Whereas like this, you know, he talks about it being a riff on point blank and it really does seem to get the weird, eerie rhythm of point blank. Like it seems to borrow things that I like about point blank without, um, I don't know. Uh, without being so obviously like a pastiche artist without being like Tarantino-y about it not to totally shit on Tarantino I mean I like it sometimes when he does it too but um, like I know we were we were sort of talking beforehand um, there I think it's Amazon is readapting the Walker novels from which Point Break is bro- uh, adapted uh, with with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, taking on the Lee Marvin role all five foot one of Robert Downey Jr. and I think um, Isak Tabakale is a much better uh, choice for sort of a Lee Marvin riff. I think part of why he's so good in this is that he feels like elemental. I don't know he's, he's like he's uh, I don't know, he, he's like he often plays kind of like man a few words sort of roles, and I feel like this is like the apotheosis of that. I don't know. He's he's so like subtly intimidating, and I don't, I don't know. Much like Lee Marvin, he's uh, violent looking. Like Lee Marvin has that crazy uh, mouth, and Debunkley has these big cheekbones. They're both really tall and skinny. Yeah, I kind of wish we got to see him kill more people in this stuff. It's, I mean, I know why Jarvish only has him kill one guy, but it, it makes you long for an assassin movie starring Isak Devonkele. Like, it makes you long for them casting him in the Walker, Walker readaptation. Well, he has such an incredible presence to him. I mean, yeah, I think that's one so of my good. favorite parts of the film is that he's such a like a, a tonal anchor to every single scene, which is why I love being in sort of his sensorium like Jarmusch does these things where he has these montages of what uh Bankley is sort of paying attention to in the background so it's it'd be like a shot of birds someone walking around a car driving um but my favorite aspect is when um Bankley actually goes to the museums and like looks at art and his intensity is so infectious in those moments especially as someone who like I love going to museums and like sitting down on a bench and staring at a painting for 15 minutes. And, you know, like I'm that guy who just for context, if you haven't seen the film, Ben Clay will walk into these gallery rooms and he'll look at a painting um, and there will be this zoom in the camera into Bankale and then we'll cut to the painting and back and forth, back and forth. It's one, one painting a day he looks at, right? Yeah. And the music swells and the, the background goes out of focus and it feels like you can you can like feel his attention you can feel him like communing and contact and connecting with the art in front of him and i relate to that so deeply sort of on a personal level and i think it takes an actor like Bankley to sort of communicate that to an audience because he has such a presence to him and such an atmosphere to him where he can he can communicate something as ethereal as what it feels like to connect with a painting you know what I mean? I think it's really difficult to do that in film because it's such an internal feeling. Like, how are you ex- supposed to externalize that without dialogue or something more overt or more explicit? And he does it in this really interesting way. And I think Bankley, like, I can't see anybody else playing this role to me. I think he's absolutely perfect. And he's so different in every Jarmusch movie. Like, he's 
Yeah. Never the same character from the cab driver in Night on Earth, the the French ice cream man and ghost dog. Like yeah. I didn't even recognize him as the same person. I was like, wait, no way. <laughs> like he can His just... role in Ghost Dog is really uh, out of left field for the type of characters he usually plays. Yeah. yeah. He's he's a bit uh, of a such a goofy <laughs> character. So there's a lot of like looking in this movie. Uh, there's the the performance where the the flamenco performers sort of um, repeat some of the dialogue we've heard. There's him like kind of looking out of like train windows and stuff, um, and he pointedly, uh, you know, does a lot of like looking at uh, Pazilla Huerta's character. Uh, there's a sort of a spectatorship there. I don't know. I mean, to what extent do you think it's a movie about movies? I mean, I know that could be sort of like trite. But, no, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I was taken on the last viewing by like him noticing Tilda Swinton in the movie poster dressed yeah. like when he sees her. Um, yeah, I mean, there's an explicit moment talking about, I guess, movie viewership too, where um, in what conversation it is. It's the third, third conversation one, with Tilda Swinton where she is speaking. She walks up to Bankley, of course, like walking in slow motion as pigeons fly everywhere. And it's this very dramatic um, white sequence. Suit, white hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she sits down and she starts talking about how she enjoys watching films and she says things like the best films are like dreams you've never sure you've had. And she loves it, you know, just looking at the mise-en-scene, like looking at clothing, looking at how, you know, rooms are arranged, cars and trains and things like that. And she describes a way to view films that you're not sort of taught to, you know what I mean? Like, I think, especially when I started out, like, in school studying film, you're supposed to identify, like, events and your and and scenes and acts and all these, like, concrete things that make up a film, almost like a, you know, mathematical formula, like, this happens, so this happens, so this happens. And she's describing it in, in this really interesting, like, atmospheric, abstract way. And I think, for me, I'm not, you know, trying to put words in Jim Jarmusch's mouth, but to me, he's like, oh, this is how you should experience this film as well. You should experience this film as almost like, you know, purely experiential in a way that feels, you know, like a dream, like I'll say it a million times or something like that. Are you familiar with how he came up with Tilda Swinton's role? No, no, no. So I, he had an interview where he said that Tilda's eight-year-old son had asked her, what were dreams like before cinema? And I guess she oh wrote this really beautiful essay about what dreams and like the overlap between dreams and cinema and how they like mesh. And so he pulled lines directly from that and like inserted them between stuff he'd written. And so it was kind of a combination of the two. And the interviewer was like, oh, did she notice? He was like, oh, yeah, she noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Do you see the other conversations as, as at all related to how you're supposed to appreciate art or watch the movie? Because I found myself, I don't know, in the last viewing, like looking for, for differences in the uh, routine between every conversation and trying to see if they somehow reflected an approach to art that you know the the, the conversation showed. Um, I mean, I yeah. I don't know. I, I guess we were talking about influences. John Hurt's conversation is mm-hmm. is what like all about the etymology of the word bohemia or yeah. something. And I I guess I found myself thinking like, is that maybe representing a style of film viewership that's just like spot the reference or like where did this come from? Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe you seem to be suggesting that maybe he has more respect for for Tilda's character or something, or that we're meant to take that conversation more seriously. And I think she is the only person he talks to that he then encounters later on at all, right? When he sees her on the poster. 
Yeah. And I mean, but I think the other conversation I guess would sort of relate to that one is um, the Gael Garcia Bernal conversation towards the end um, where he's talking about sort of like hallucinations and subjectivity, like his quote, um, everything changes by the color of glass you see through things like that. Nothing's true. Everything's imagined. And he's talking about like peyote trips and and things like that. I think, you know, that was also pointing to another way to enjoy art. Like I think, um, when you go to a museum with people sometimes and all they do is read the plaques underneath and they just want to know like when did this painting come out who is the artist what was their life like but they're not actually like looking at the painting and having their own like subjective experience with the art i think that's one of the things that sort of that scene is poking to you know as well that like and he said this explicitly that not everybody has to take the limits of control in the same way and he said that in um, another lincoln center interview that he wants people to have their own experiences with the film and to sort of take their own things from it and you know use it as a kaleidoscope of sorts I think, I mean, after the um, conversation with, with Gail Garcia Bernal, the film does seem to get into, not quite more hallucinatory, but it does get a little even dreamier than it's been. Yeah. There's, of course, you know, when he assassinates Bill Murray at the end, he just sort of appears inside, you know, he says, I use my imagination, which I like because it can, mm-hmm. it can mean like I was imaginative. It could be like a yeah. very carefully sort of a dickish answer. He can mean, oh, I was imaginative and how I like dispatched those guys, or it can mean, you know, just I appear here. Um, and also, I, I like we talked about the sort of like there's a sort of a digital Lynchian vibe to that that car trip out to the compound with the the sort of first person or the dashboard. It I don't know. It it wouldn't shock me if Lynch said it influenced uh, Twin Peaks: The Return. I don't know. There's a lot of like first person out of like cars going down like desert roads. Uh, feels a little similar. Um, I don't know. That's I guess the one example where I can think of the conversation really seeming to um, uh, affect the material moving forward. So Bennett, I know you are a, a huge fan of peak TV. Um, oh. I found a quote where Jarmusch calls TV the worst threat to innovation in cinema. And to me, this movie is kind of the opposite of you know the loud, flashy, sexy stuff we see everywhere that people say is you know genius. I'm just curious how you feel this film functions like because it was in 2006. So before, what, was that like the kickoff of peak TV? Uh, Mad Men from Britain, like, 08, you're, you're getting there. I mean, The Sopranos is very much, like... It's coming up. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the content industrial complex that's been enabled by TV, it runs on um, like crowd work, basically. It runs on, you know, uh, references that you'll get. It runs on, like, oh, hey, all my friends are here. You know, here's CGI Luke Skywalker. It runs on the familiar. And this is a movie where... Besides it featuring faces that you'll recognize from Jim Jarmusch and maybe making sort of oblique reference to films that like fans of his will know he's a fan of, it really doesn't offer any of that sort of like fan service that I associate with, uh, yeah, content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I mean, I think the best example in the film, which is also my favorite moment in the film too, is the flamenco sequence where um, I can't imagine the flamenco sequence sort of operating in that world, in the television world. I could see a producer being like, what's the point of this? Cut it. Cut it for time or something like that. Like there's just there would be nothing there would be nothing, I guess, like of merit to something like the flamenco sequence to, you know, in a film executive or something like that, that because it would just confuse a viewer. And for people who haven't seen the film, too, um, Bankole walks into um, I guess this bar or like performance space, black box space. 
and um, all of the chairs and all the tables are flipped over and, and, and it's clearly not in business. It's clearly closed. And he just sort of waltzes in. And um, there are some flamenco performers practicing or rehearsing on stage. And he just sits down and sort of watches them rehearse and this like weird pitter pattery performance where they, they go and they stop and they go and they stop. And at a certain point, um, the dancer just keeps going and the guitarist is playing and and the singer is singing. And it's this just wonderful moment where you're able to sit and just enjoy this. You're enjoying, you know, artistry. You know what I mean? You're having this like quiet moment with Bankalay and with these artists in a scene in a you know, in a scenario that doesn't have a huge audience there or something like that. It's like an incredibly quiet, contemplative moment. And to me that when I watch peak TV or when I watch prestige television, there's none of that. You know, there's no moments really of like contemplation and, and silence and meditation in that way, especially ones that feel as indulgent as, you know, the flamenco sequence feels. Or if they exist, they draw such attention to themselves that they're like set pieces in video games. They're designed yeah. for a vulture list. It's like, we need to talk about that scene from yeah. last week's episode of, scenes from a marriage or whatever <laughs> yeah. so i think i just have one more question for this section and it's in the same line just because nothing in this movie is obvious and i do love that in interviews he just dodges questions like we talked about before we started recording where someone asked him like a very specific question about this movie and he just goes mm, i'd rather talk about pythagoras <laughs> <You know? laughs> um but he really presents this as a blank slate where you almost like a you know brackage film like it's just what you make of it and i'm just curious if you think forcing people to think about a movie is why this only brought in two million dollars as opposed to broken flowers which i will say is his most simplistic movie i think it's you know, and it, I just love that those come back to back. Yeah. I mean, this film requires a lot of attention. Like this is not a film that will hold your hand and carry you through it. Um, which sometimes makes it, uh, this will sound bad, like a difficult watch. Like it's not a film that you're going to sit back and relax to, even though it's one of my favorite films of, of all time. Um, and it even took me a while to get through it on revisiting it because I was taking so many notes and finding so many things. It's a film where you can just like sit and think about it for hours and hours about, you know, why this film works, even though it's so strange. Um, and so I do think that's one of the reasons why people have trouble with it. I mean, a similar situation that I've talked about on Split Tooth Podcast before is Roger Ebert's, you know, take on Taste of Cherry as well, the Kiristami film. Like any film that that where you really have to sort of meditate on it to try and understand it or or put a lot of thought into why this film works or how was this film made or where the filmmaker is coming from don't seem to do to, so well in the zeitgeist and those films often get um smashed down particularly like people like roger ebert who gave this you know a half a star and i think he gave something similar to taste of cherry where you almost see critics not engage with it like a you know a kelly reichert film or something like that something you know like like you could probably you can have a big board with all of the connecting strings to all these different films and all these different directors like you know charlie day and always sunny or something like that um and there's a reason why a lot of these films are sort of uh underseen and and reviled by some and then evangelized by others and i think that it takes 
you know, it's a different form of viewing. Yeah, I don't know. I, Broken Flowers is a very like Sun Nancy film. Yeah. Whereas like this is fair. so this is so like consciously like arty. I yeah, I don't know. I I, I um it's maybe simplistic to suggest that it was just sort of a reaction against uh, that sort of new level of, of of popularity. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's like the film equivalent of like sitting in a museum and looking at a painting. You know, you sort of have to really kind of be be paying attention, and uh, you have to sort of really be uh, serious about it. Um, that said, it's a f- more fun film than I think that makes it sound. I don't know. I think if you do sort of, uh, tune into it, it's, it offers a lot of pleasures. It's shot by Christopher Doyle. I mean, it's nice to look at. It's uh, the Boris soundtrack is great. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're the kind of person that likes to sort of spend three hours in a museum wandering around, you know, listlessly and just going from beautiful art to beautiful art, this is the perfect film for you. You know, so if you enjoy that experience, then you'll love this film. And I think that, you know, type of personality is not always, um, I guess, uh, I, I don't know what the word would be for it, but promoted in cinema, especially mainstream American cinema. That's that's not necessarily the type of viewing that it gets, you know, promoted. So it's the opposite of entertainment. Yeah, it's- very deliberate and purposeful. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. It's it's like, I think that's the complexity of Jarmusch too. It's like, he says he wants to make a film that's like a dream where you can wander, but it seems weirdly focused. I think that's what makes him such an interesting person for me too, is that he's obsessed with contradiction in his films, but he also seems to like have a lot of contradiction in his interviews and between like his ideas for his films and how they're produced and things like that. I think that makes like these films much more interesting too, is that you can, you know, dwell on the contradictions and they sort of, you know, mirror the complexity of the person who's making them instead of, you know, being this shiny little diamond that's, you know, sold like product. So. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. It's again, maybe I'm being like, maybe it's too simplistic a way of looking at it, but I think it's also a pretty like trollish film. I think it's like kind of like deliberately like goading you into going down rabbit holes and stuff. There's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of MacGuffins like deliberately meaningless little plot elements, which again is a quality I think it has in common with the dead don't die. I think they're both kind of like trolls on the audiences who showed up expecting one thing and got something very different. Yeah. With that being said, let's take a quick break. We're going to talk about zombies. We'll be back. Dead Don't Die is Jarmusch's most recent film. came out in 2019. I personally did not see it until a few months ago because I had heard exclusively negative things about it with the most positive reviews being that it was merely a disappointment. Maybe it's because I entered expecting a complete train wreck of a film, but I was honestly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It's a low-stakes comedy that was clearly just made for the fun of it. I think if a filmmaker who didn't have Jarmusch's reputation made it, the reception would definitely have skewed more positive. What were your first reactions to The Dead Don't Die, and when did you see it? So I, yes, also, I, you know, it came with uh, some expectations. Uh, there's obviously quite a star-studded cast. Um, Jarmusch's reputation obviously precedes him. 
and despite my misgivings, his recent output has been um, just about as acclaimed as anything he's ever made. Um, you know, at least with in terms of the contemporary response. Um, so I also avoided it when it came out because the reviews turned out to be overwhelmingly negative, despite um, all the hype. I think it premiered at Cannes, even in competition. I, uh, I could be wrong, um, which is crazy. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen this in theaters. I actually really regret that I didn't now because um, watching it, uh, it going through Jarmusch's films recently and trying to decide what to discuss for the podcast and, you know, hoping to pick something off the beaten path, knowing I was a bit of a skeptic towards some of the acclaimed Jarmusch's, I, uh, yeah, I found a film that has only grown in, in my estimation with each viewing. It is um, just a defiantly stupid, half-assed movie. And <laughs> I think if it, yeah, if it wasn't made by and starring people with, you know, reputations to uphold, I think it would be at least a So Bad It's Good classic amongst a, a wider group of people. Well, I did see it in theaters. Oh, what was that like? <laughs> uh, it was crickets. I mean, I, don't even, I saw it in New York and I... I don't even think there were many people in the theater. I went with a couple of friends um, who fell asleep during it and I stayed awake to watch the whole thing. And they woke up like towards the end and they asked me like, Hey, do we miss anything? And I was like, no, no like, not really. <laughs> honestly, you didn't really miss anything. You could, you know, you could just go back to sleep. And I think that is really sort of my biggest thing with the film is that I feel so connected to, I guess his more quote unquote profound work that when I see the dead don't die, I'm like, I just want another amazing Jarmish film and it's just like it has all of his sort of idiosyncrasies that I can't stand that is usually diluted by interesting technique. And I think seeing it on a second go around, I will say I definitely didn't hate it as much as I did back then. I think I was more of, you know, idealistic when I first saw it in theaters. Um, so I, I see your point that like it's it really is just like a fun movie that's supposed to be light and and silly um but i can't help thinking about how connected i am with his work that seems to take itself a little more seriously and i would have loved to see a film like that with this subject i think that would have been interesting so yeah uh limits of control he's hanging out in the museum here he's rolling <laughs> around in the mud yeah um, totally yeah i i think also some of my maybe a little outsized affection for it is because like i can't help but compare it to other kind of similarly themed, like, oh, we're fucked sort of movies that have come out from like major directors, most notably uh, Adam McKay, the great Adam McKay's Don't Look Up, which has a very similar tone to um, Tom Waits's voiceovers in this movie, which are sort of um, stoner philosophizing on like how badly we fucked up the planet, like really dealing in banalities. And I think Jarmish sort of is tongue in cheek, kind of knows that like the movie is really dumb and that like, you know, it's not, has nothing profound to say about our current kind of mid apocalypse state. Whereas like Adam McKay, I think genuinely thinks if, if he were the president, <laughs> like we'd solve climate change. Yeah. Yeah. So before we solve climate change, Bennett, you wanted to give us a quick background of what the dead don't die is all about beyond the zombie word so the dead don't die is set in a town called centerville i think it's in either pennsylvania or ohio sort of jim jarmish's kind of midwestern milieu and it's mostly focused well it's focused on a cast of characters and almost altman like tapestry of of small town oddballs um <laughs> most, most notably um three cops played by uh, bill murray adam driver and uh, chloe sevigny um, there is a, a hermit who lives out in the woods, played by Tom Waits. I'll say one thing for Jarmish, and I, I think he basically introduced the world to um, Tom Waits, the actor in uh, Down by Law. Love it. Great move. 
I cannot stand Tom Waits' music. Most of it, love Tom Waits, the actor. He Big fan. rather great, um, yeah. <laughs> you've also got... Um, You've got a diner, uh, uh, the proprietor of, whom, of which is uh, Esther Ballant from uh, Stranger Than Paradise, um, now kind of talking with like sort of a, a exaggerated like American accent, which I thought was pretty funny. You have Steve Buscemi as the local racist farmer. Um, you've got Danny Glover as kind of his, uh, his long-suffering, not-quite-friend. Uh, you've got Rosie Perez as a newswoman named Posey Juarez to give you a sense of the, the humor we're dealing with here. Uh, and there's also uh, there's a group of like out-of-towners with, featuring uh, Selena Gomez. Um, there's some juvenile delinquents who uh, escape from a, uh, a, like a juvenile detention facility. And uh, basically, we, we check in on all of these characters throughout the film as a zombie outbreak occurs because of some sort of like vague apocalyptic environmental disaster. I think there's been like polar fracking or something has like put the planet off its axis. Again, like that's the the sort of sense of humor and the level of kind of um, how we live now insight we're dealing with here. It's kind of a movie that's pretty consciously just kind of putting its hand into the sort of grab bag of, you know, buzzwords and key phrases and, and kind of putting that onto uh, the zombie genre. Let's hop on this now. Why do you feel the film was so dismissed when it came out? Like I said, it's it's almost like confrontationally half-baked. There are these kind of really like low-hanging fruit, fourth wall breaks throughout. Yeah. Um, like toward the end of the film, <laughs> Bill Murray is like, God damn it, Jim, you know, for all I've done for that asshole. And it's like, that's like tantamount to Daffy Duck complaining about their deal in Space Jam. <laughs> like it's, it's that level of like Hollywood insider stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think... Jarmusch has this this huge reputation. He's really known as the guy. I think people welcomed Only Lovers Left Alive and Patterson as maybe indicating kind of a new era for him of, you know, kind of slower star vehicles, finding him in kind of like a meditative pace. I think this took a lot of that to uh, extreme that people really weren't expecting. And I think people really resent paying like $15 to see a movie that just sort of acknowledges how stupid it is throughout you know mm-hmm. um where aliens show up just because yeah. <laughs> um where every character dies most of them off screen um you know it's i think i think people really felt like cheated um similar to i mean the same way if someone went into limits of control expecting they were going to see you know Isaac de Bacale as a globetrotting assassin they might feel like they you know uh been duped a little bit yeah, I mean, when my moment was when you see the zombie moan Wi-Fi, <laughs> and they're holding <laughs> their cell phone. Bit, yeah. That's that's the moment where my eyes rolled and was like, I can't take this anymore. On my first viewing, now I could take it a little lighter, but this film just seems I don't. There's so much. I mean, the fourth wall breaks in particular are what sort of they were bothered bad. me. They were bad. Yeah, they <laughs> they bothered me on this viewing. I don't know if they really bothered me on my first viewing. I don't even I didn't even remember them. Well, they were but so half assed this... like, "Oh, it's the soundtrack." Yeah, it's and I, like, I yeah. Come on. And I think music like, to my there, ears. <laughs> I think there are some like fourth wall breaking moments in limits too, like when Tilda Swinton says, "I love it when people in films sit and don't say anything to each other, and then they sit and don't say anything to each other for like 10 seconds." Mm-hmm. Um, but to me that's like more interesting and funny than them explicitly going, oh, I read the script. Yeah. Oh, uh, Jim only gave me our scenes. And, you know, Adam Driver saying, oh, this is the theme song of the film. And you're going like, any director can do this. Like, this doesn't take any tact or, you know, this is not interesting to I think, me. I think I think there is, I think there's some more subtle stuff in some of the fourth wall breaks, I'll say. 
Um, and this is maybe me getting a little too a little too high minded. Maybe me suggesting the movie has more more on its mind than it really does. I don't know. I think you can take something like Adam Driver saying, like, "Well, this isn't good. this is going to end badly, but we got to give it our best shot." Isn't that true of life itself? You know, <laughs> we know we know it's going to end badly, but we've got to we've got to give it a shot. I think I think maybe that's some of what Jim Jarmusch is saying because I think he he said in interviews that he very pointedly does not show us the fate of the um, escaped uh, juvenile delinquents. They, uh, you know, one of them says, like, I know somewhere we can hide and then we don't see them again. So it is, even for a even if it is a movie that ends with all of the main characters dying, Adam Driver holding, like, Selena Gomez's, like, severed head and, and Tom Waits in a voiceover saying, like, boy, we really, we really gribbled it up this time. Uh, there is sort of, you know, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of hope there. I think he is maybe on, on Driver's side. I think Driver is maybe what we get sort of, uh, the closest we maybe get to a, a, a Jarvis surrogate in the film through some of those lines like that. He does sneak in a lot of political overtones that I think probably also threw some people off. I mean, do you think those are a strength or a weakness of this? It's hard to say if it's a strength or a weakness because I think I think the whole point of like, at least my definition of late style, which I should say, like as defined by Edward Said, was never like fully defined. Like I think his collection of essays on it was compiled after his death. So I use that as an excuse to have my own sort of fuzzy definition of it. But I think part of what's so great about late style is that like the pros and cons of the movie really start to blend. Yeah. Like I think it's very clear that Jarmish is pretty pretty boomer brained politically in the post Trump world. There's just a lot of interviews where he's saying a lot of the same stuff that like artists his age are saying about like you know i really admire this greta thunberg and these these kids in florida like a lot of that which like you know is like well-meaning and like we all we all admire this stuff but like it's it's not all that profound coming from like a, like a master filmmaker to be like riffing riffing on these ideas um, so i don't know i think i think the dead don't die has maybe revealed him to be a little boomer brained and i think like as befuddled by like the state of things uh, as anybody else which i think is maybe like a scary thing for someone who's had a kind of unflappable sense of cool about him uh, throughout his career i mean i i would love to read like a production diary of this film because i it it reads to me like they might have just given up like halfway through i mean think about what like a nightmare the, the production schedules for this must have been a movie just with this many like movie stars. I'm sure Adam Driver is shooting it like between Star Wars movies. A lot of like the bad reviews on Letterboxd note that there's a lot of like awful like day for night shooting in this and like some badly like, CGI and stuff like I don't know. It it feels like maybe some of the some of the just shortcomings might be in keeping with a movie that is just sort of I don't know, is sort of tossed off because it had to be. Because uh it's just you know, it's it's the world we live in now. Is not uh is not permissible to, you know a better version of this movie getting made. That's why like I could take the political messages a little more seriously if I didn't think a lot of that stuff was going on in the film, especially like even the things that I could take sort of lightheartedly, like Iggy Pop as a zombie uh, drinking out of a coffee pot and things like that. But I think that's kind of another one of my pet peeves about this film is that um, like the sort of the star studded nature of it really bothers me. And I, I don't think that having a, an ensemble cast or having a ton of stars is necessarily a bad thing if they all sort of add something with substance to the film or add something interesting to the piece. But I find everyone's performances just like across the board to be so lackluster and, and sort of phoned in. Like it, that, like what you're saying, Bennett, like it feels like a film where everybody just like phoned it in completely. And like you have all these extremely talented artists on this and you have this end product and you're like, if, if you added it up like a math problem or something, you'd be like, how do we get this? You know what I mean? But, you know, and that's why, and it's the things like, 
Selena Gomez saying, hi, I'm Zoe and sparkles happening over her head. It's like, yeah, we know she's Selena Gomez, Jim Jarmish. Like you don't have to, you know, put sparkles over her head or something like that. And like, and same with like the references. Like, I think it's a lot worse in only lovers left alive because they seemingly, they seemingly can't not reference a famous artist or poet or painter in, you know, every 30 seconds in that film to show that these are cool vampires who are immortal, who hung out with every cool person in the history of the world. Um, but in this film, it's like, oh, Bobby's wearing a Nosferatu shirt. He makes a George Romero reference. It's like, oh my God, we're such cinephiles. And it's like, and, and like to your point, I think we were talking about this yesterday, Bennett, whereas like how... How seriously are we supposed to take, um, oh, your film knowledge is so impressive, that one line? Because both Nosferatu and George Romero are not like deep cuts. Pre, <laughs> you know, you know it's, like, it's not like you're a crazy cinephile if you've seen Night of the Living Dead or something like that. It's like, I think that's like one of the first films you watch if you want to get into this kind of stuff. So it's like, I can never tell whether he's being snide or if he's being serious or something. I think that's another part of this film that it, it feels like the low effort nature of it confuses me so much where I don't know like what to take seriously and what not to take seriously, but in a way where it's like, Oh, he just didn't give a shit sometimes, you know? Um, I, in general do not like movies like this where it's wall to wall, famous names and faces. I just find it like really distracting when like every person in a movie is like attractive enough to lead a movie. I, like the, uh, Oppenheimer has recently run into some controversy with the upcoming Christopher Nolan movie because it's like well, it's like 70 white people but like I think here I actually think he gets a couple people I think he has some fun with who he has um, play into um, the type they usually play like for example Rosie Perez really seems to be overdoing uh, her famous annoying accent in this movie which I think is great I, uh, I say annoying affectionately as well I love uh, Rosie Perez's crazy accent uh, I uh, and whereas um, and I think like Caleb Landry Jones, I think is actually really great um, playing kind of against type. He usually plays like Ben Foster, like ooh, don't bring him along types. And here he's like sort of uh, like the the nerdy uh, clerk at the convenience store. Uh, I think Chloe Seventy, who usually plays really kind of like unflappably cool Jarmuschian characters, um, is the the cop who really like loses her cool and like breaks down at the end. I think uh, almost an almost affecting scene, I'll say. Uh, you mentioned the, the Iggy Pop coffee zombie thing too. I think the first sequence with the zombies is some ace '90s, early 2000s, like studio comedy type physical Definitely. stuff. I, I, like it's like fat suit comedy type stuff, like throwing like boiling coffee on them, them like just sort of like stumbling around, bumping into each other. I uh, I like how long he lingers on that stuff. Like I think he, I don't know, like he's tuned into I think some of like the surface pleasures of this movie. Um, for as much if it doesn't work. Yeah. And overall, I think a lot of this stuff wouldn't bother me if there was just any interesting technique going on in the film as a whole. Like I think, you know, in a lot of my, you know, uh, of his other films, something that I love is his cinematography, like how he shoots space, how like even a small space, like a jail cell can look differently if you used, you know, inventive camera angles or, you know, interesting plays with light or something like that. Like he really stretches his ability to shoot these sort of limited spaces or even shows things that aren't limited in really strange ways. And it's just like, there are no moments in, in The Dead Don't Die where I think, oh man, that's his signature visual style. It all just seems like very by the book, which I think is another thing that sort of disappointed me is because I never think of him as like this by the book, you know, visual style kind of guy where this seems very just like in, you know, chained to the narrative kind of film. Jarmusch's greatest strength 
and weakness stylistically is his use of repetition. I will say I love the diner scene when they all walk in and they just say like the exact same thing. Like, was it an animal? Uh, <laughs> that was great. But I mean, even in things like night on earth, like, you know, the radio broadcast that ties it all together. I love that, but he just goes so far. I feel like, especially as more modern movies, like he just doesn't know when to stop the repetition at times. I mean, what do you guys think about his repetition? I'm sort of divided about it. I enjoy repetition as a stylistic technique i can think it'd be it can be something very powerful and not to make like an out of the blue reference but when i think of someone like brisson like how he uses repetition it's incredibly powerful in his films how he uses it um and i think it's sometimes powerful when jarmusch uses it in his films or oftentimes i should say um it was grating on me a little bit in the dead don't die especially the song um, I felt like how Bill Murray felt like where he just wanted to take the CD and throw it out the window of the car and destroy it. I was like, I'm so tired of hearing this song at this point, which I think is also the point of what he's doing. I don't think Jarmusch is like, oh, that bothered you. No, he was like trying to bother you the whole time. So um, I guess that's a point in favor for, for him, for for the style of it. Um, but I actually, I really enjoy that diner scene as well, Craig, where he where they were walking inside the diner and going out and asking if it was a wild animal or several wired animals. I, I I liked that part of the film mm-hmm. like that's very low on my list of sort of pet peeves with this film sort of thing i think that's actually a, a one in the good column for me okay it surprises me a little bit the degree to which this was um greeted as like a total like nothing else he'd ever made like total departure almost all of his movies take place in some sort of like not quite apocalyptic but definitely like rundown sort of uh dilapidated settings i mean permanent vacation i think might literally be like after an apocalypse um but you know uh stranger than paradise and 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 most most of his movies they're they're well they're going through these sort of barren landscapes you know they often look like almost like western like ghost towns or something and um i don't know this movie opens with like a literal shot of a cemetery as if to say that like yeah we're we're dialing the usual sort of misery and, and barrenness up and um all of his movies are about like aliens in a certain respect too. They're often about, um, you know, people who are in a new place, uh, they don't speak the language, they're unfamiliar with the terrain, the customs. And uh, this movie has an actual alien in it, <laughs> as played by Tilda Swinton. So I don't know, I, uh, I, I, I like, I, I can't think of another example off the top of my head, but I, I, I like that this is like his consensus worst film, but also like the apotheosis of so many things he does in all of his other films. Um, it's so fun to see him like take stuff to the extreme and see people react with just disgust. Mm-hmm. It's late style, baby. <laughs> I completely agree about the dilapidated landscapes, especially like Detroit and only lovers left alive. He's very deliberate about how he's talking about sort of the, the fall of Detroit and things like that. Um, and so I enjoy that aspect too. I think that's one of the parts that I, I, I didn't think about it until we were speaking about it yesterday. Um, that he portrays all of these environments with such like brutal honesty. And I think a little aggression too. like when he films New York city, he's not, you know, Woody Allen or something like that. And he's like, Oh, this is the most beautiful place in the world. He's like, no, it's like filled with mud and dirt and grime. And like, and uh, Ava gets off of the plane and walks through like, you know, puddles. It looks like the opening of a racer head or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a dystopian landscape instead of, you know, George Gershwin, uh, 
playing in a montage of Central Park or something like that. So I, I completely agree that like his landscapes are very similar in how sort of dystopian and apocalyptic they feel. I mean, Memphis is it feels like it's falling apart at the seams and just like made with rust and mystery train, you know. Right. And that, I mean, that's like a great example too. It's like people are going to it as like a destination and it turns out to be like nothing like what they expected. Yeah. And most of the cities in Night on Earth are shown to be especially desolate. I think especially um, the, the uh, Finnish chapter yeah. is really sort of like sad and uh, uh, stark. I um, I don't know. I know I was shitting on like fan service and like, you know, like one for the fans and like little like spot the reference type stuff. But I'll admit, I was so happy when Esther Ballant shows up in uh, The Dead Don't Die. Uh, yeah, I think she's I so great in Stranger Than Paradise. And then uh, when uh, when Louis C.K. had that TV show before he died, she was on like a six episode arc uh, mm-hmm. and gave a gave a great performance. Um, I always I don't know I like seeing her pop up in things. So Ben, I do want to return to an idea we touched on earlier. I mentioned I see these as kind of the polar extremes of Jarmish, where you know one is you know pretty much blatantly an art film. This one is about as lighthearted as he gets. You kind of said you feel there's a bit more overlap than that. Do you want to elaborate on that? They are the opposites in the sense that they rec- they they represent extremes of tone and of yeah um, seriousness, mm-hmm. but I think they're very much of a piece in that they represent kind of what I talked about him dialing up what people usually like about his films to like an extreme. Um, they both have these kind of like show offy, um, star studded casts. Um, you know, they both really just kind of like drop you into this world and kind of expect you to figure it out. Uh, they both really deliberately avoid most of what you'd expect from the genre they ostensibly fall into. Um, and then they both have those kind of like nudging kind of like fourth wall breaks um, that seem to say like, is this what you want? Is this what you want? <laughs> um, so I don't know. I um, Even if even if um, they, they occupy kind of like opposite ends of like the respectability spectrum, I think they... Uh, they find Jarmish in somewhat similar uh, trollish modes. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree that if I don't watch The Dead Don't Die and say, who is this? Like, I don't know who this person is. No, like, this is the person that has been making these films all along. It's just something happened. <laughs> like, something something broke in his mind or in all of the actors. Like, something must have happened during this production cycle where things just, like, went totally off the rails. Because, I mean... I agree with all your points. I think it's 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 all there, but I think a lot of the idiosyncrasies that get sort of um, downturned in his other films, like the references, especially, which is I hate all of the referential stuff uh, in films in in general. It's like it annoys me. Um, but it, it's just so strong in this film because there's a lack of other things. I think the the balance is all off. To me, there's like an equilibrium in a lot of Jarmish films where he constantly wants to tell you all of the musicians he loves. He wants to tell you all of the artists he loves. Um, this is a cool painter. This is a cool writer or philosopher. Um, but it's offset by these other sort of technical aspects of his film, which make it, you know, palatable for me, at least uh, personally. And I think in this film, because the pendulum is swinging so far to one side, that's why I find it sort of disappointing. But I think over the years, I'll calm down about it. And I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe in 10 years, I'll watch The Dead Don't Die and be like, man, I'm, this is going to be a three-star film instead of a two-star film or something like that. You know, I, I can grow. I can grow eventually, <laughs> you know. It's interesting. I um, A lot of like the good critics liked Limits of Control in its time. At least I've seen like Jay Oberman and Manola Dargis, I think, really liked, liked it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Michael Koreski for Reverse Shot wrote a pretty positive review. I think called it like his best film in a decade. 
I have not really seen anybody go to bat for The Dead Don't Die. I want to say Richard Brody wrote a positive review of it, but I'm not sure. So, uh, I don't know. I might be uh, among the very few people carrying the torch for, for uh, The Dead Don't Die for a while, but hopefully uh, people come around on it. You can corner I, the uh, market. It seems like on Letterboxd, it, it sits in like a three-ish ballpark for a fair amount of people I follow, which is good. I think that's fair, too. I don't think this is a film that should be like you know, thrown in a mud puddle or something like that. I don't think this is like the worst film I've ever seen or anything like that. It's just, I feel so closely connected with some of his, I think more profound work that when I watch this, I yearn for, you know, a different, more focused Jarmish. It's not as bad as like, give me danger or something like that, where I'm like, what are... uh, that's the one I haven't seen. Oh you don't my need God. To. Yeah. You don't need yeah. to see that. Yeah, G- yeah. It's so disappointing. It's like the most boring documentary about the most exciting band ever sort of thing. That's a good tagline for it, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see the consensus on Dead Don't Die in the future taming. I, I think people will realize it's not an art film. It's just a fun thing, and they'll be like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, my take for, I don't think we really need to do a pick on these two today just because you two are so clearly uh, on Team Limits of Control, but I'll say this. Limits of Control, I definitely have to be in the right mood for. If, someone, if it was like these are the two movies on the table, I would probably pick dead don't die more often just because it is like yeah whatever it's friday night let's do that that's my two oh, cents yeah, fair <laughs> i mean that's totally i mean i don't think the limits of control is a relaxing film by no. any you know like i don't want to work like a 10-hour shift and then come home and right. watch the limits of control starting starting so i think that's totally fair and i think that to me that's the strength of the film is that it it, it you have to have some skin in the game i know i like to watch this film like you have to use some some energy to watch this film, which I think is another reason why it sort of um, pushes people away and why hopefully like, I think it's just, it takes a different kind of viewership, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, sounds like, Oh man, you're just not watching the film the right way. It's like, no, it's a difficult film to watch for anybody, regardless of who you are. It just takes some, you know, some time. Mm-hmm. So I think my last question is more of a general Jarmish question. So a lot of my friends, they have only seen Patterson or some of his new stuff. I'm shocked that Down by Law, Dead Man, Strange of the Paradise, like those aren't his top films. Do you think the way you, like the order in which you see these films colors your overall reception of them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I could see someone coming from like Patterson being kind of baffled by the earlier stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the there's you know plenty of like traits in common but yeah i don't know his his newer movies i think the repetition has gotten to be too much for me and uh i don't know obviously some people like it they're the they're the more popular movies on letterboxd and imdb for a reason beyond just the recency but um i would encourage people to go uh watch yeah the kind of wilder uh genre experiments like dead man and limits of control yeah um more more abrasive movies because i don't know i I, I know I've been I've been singing the praises of the dead don't die as like a such a like relaxing lackadaisical movie, but like I don't know Patterson and and, and um, Only Lovers Left Alive have such like I don't know just like soporific pacing and uh, I don't know you go back to something like um, Stranger Than Paradise and even if it is sort of like meandering it feels kind of immediate and uh, uh, I don't know improvisational in, in a way that these ones don't these new ones feel so mannered. Um, I think another reason I kind of like had a knee jerk reaction to Jarmish that was sort of negative is I really kind of blame him for foisting um, like epic Bill Murray and epic Tilda Swinton onto us. <laughs> um, 
I mean, you know, he gave us John Lurie and like Esther Ballant and Tom Waits, the actor, but he's also got a lot of, a lot of sins to atone for when it comes to like, you know, helping actors craft personas that we now have to see in like every freaking movie. Yeah. I would implore people to start with his first film and just go forward from there. He's one of the first, I think he's one of the few filmmakers that I would say that about because sometimes when I recommend filmmakers to other people, I'll be like, you know, there's this film that's a good entry point, this film that's a good entry point. But really and truly, I think if you want to experience Jarmusch's career, it just go from the first to the last sort of thing. Um, but there is a real shift at a certain point from these films that are so like charged in a way, like Stranger Than Paradise is kind of a meditative, slower film, but it's so charged with this energy that it's like, I am cutting down all of American mythology with this film. Like everything you've seen in other Hollywood depictions of New York City, you're not going to see that here. If anything, you're going to see the opposite. Same with Permanent Vacation. And I think that atmosphere is sort of lacking in some of his newer films that like edge. Like, I think it's strange to me sometimes that Jarmusch gets labeled as this like cool director. Cause I think a lot of his films have a bite to them like that. When I think of Jarmusch, I think of almost like acidity to his work and not this like cool guys, smooth dude. Do you know what I mean? Like I think of someone who has like a, something really biting to say that's going to upset people. And I think for until like Dead Man, which I think is the most exaggerated of that, basically saying that all Westerns are just complete bullshit. <laughs> I mean, like that film is like the the hellish, you know, response to all of the beautiful Westerns that you've ever seen. Um, and then something changes in his career, which who knows what, maybe he'll explain it at some point. But it all feels, I, I hate to just need, I hate to compare everything to prestige TV without like defining my terms there. But like, yeah, I don't know. So much of his stuff feels like very like, ryan murphy ish lately like like only lovers left alive felt like an episode of american horror story like it really felt like you know that level of like spot the reference uh you know fan servicey type stuff like yeah could have used another pass in the draft uh, on the script yeah yeah and i, and I think if, if if someone watched only lovers left alive and then they watched permanent vacation afterwards i think they would be extremely surprised because like i mean it's it's almost like unrecognizable sometimes like you can still see the jarmish in both of those films but something like permanent vacation is almost like aggressively unconventional you know what i mean and which has to do with like the production of that film and things like that but i think that's like to me that's the difference is that like his films before had some like acid and bite to them and like some aggression to them and some confrontation and when i see his newer work it doesn't really have that sort of tone and atmosphere to it which maybe he's a happier person i don't know maybe this is a good thing maybe this <laughs> shows that he's yeah. grown like he's grown and maybe he's happier or something like that so i don't think we should lament that sort of change but you know hopefully the technique stays if the atmosphere changes you know you guys have any final thoughts on jarmish before we head out I, I'll just say, you know, I, I'm excited to see what he does next. You know, he's hardly my favorite filmmaker, but I think The Dead Don't Die is is really more interesting than it got credit for, obviously. And, um, you know, he's probably uh, going to, he's one of the few, like, indie directors who can, like, you, we can definitely count on to probably keep getting money to make films, even if it comes from, you know, a dozen different European sources or whatever. Um well, you know, he'll probably get to keep working. So I, uh, you know, I'm interested to see what he does next. If uh, maybe the reaction to Dead Don't Die inspires another reinvention. If the path holds up, Dead Don't Die definitely feels like one for you. One for me is coming. So we'll see what he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and me, and not to get too sappy about it too, but he really is a director that like opened my world to a whole, you know, 
different perspective on film in regards to independent American cinema, particularly. So I have not lost hope. Well, he's going to make many more great films to come. And so, like, I'm not one of those people who's like, ah, Jarmish is gone or something like that. No, like, you know, he is who he is and he's made some amazing films and he's made some not so amazing films. And, you know, I, I, you know, I believe in the artist. So, I mean, to me, even his films that I'll say, like, I'm not a huge fan of, I think Broken Flowers is my lowest rated one. I still gave it three stars. Like, yeah, his worst films are still like what many people's best would be like. Yeah. He's great all around, I think. I mean, he has some questionable tendencies, but who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we will wrap it up there. Rob, Bennett, thank you guys again for joining us. It's always good to have you two. We'll we'll do more of these. We'll we'll get back in the groove. (laughs) Cool. And then, yeah, once again, happy fourth birthday to Split Tooth. Like, subscribe, follow, (laughs) share. There, and there really is no place like Split Tooth. Like, let's, you know, I know we're all in the game and we're all in the Split Tooth family, but, you know, for music and film, there really is no other place like it. So, bam. We do what we can. Thanks for listening. Bye.